Well, it's that time for us to dig into the Word of God together, and uh, it's such a privilege for me to do that with you and to lead you in the Word this morning. Um, I, as you know, came out of a, a very exciting time uh, spent at uh, Puritan uh, Reformed Theological Seminary and a uh, great conference on, the God, on God's sovereignty and suffering, uh, lots of good uh, speakers and um, yeah, we came back refreshed, so praise the Lord, and I'm, I'm, I'm all the more eager to get into uh, this bit of text with you this morning out of Galatians. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 15 to 18, uh, a new section, and I have to say, we all appreciate the value of promises made and kept, and by the same token, the disappointment of promises broken. We know both. But with God, we can always count on him to keep his promises and never renege on them, of course. And that's so wonderful when you consider the transforming power and the impact that God's promises have in our lives. Promises for our fight of the faith and also regarding our future inheritance. And I have to say... In light of that, it's, 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 it's sad. I think many in, in, in the church lack even a basic understanding of God's words, much, much less his promises. And with that lack, they experience, I think, a, a great deficit in their Christian faith, their Christian lives. Our faith is impoverished by such a lack. And what is worse, most churchgoers don't even realize either their lack of knowledge or the fact that their faith is impoverished by it. They simply don't know any better. And to top that all off, they cannot help themselves but look to cheap substitutes outside the Bible to compensate for their lack. What an abysmal situation. It is so true in American Christianity. Thankfully for us, Paul's letter to the Galatians addresses this very problem, and we look to chapter 3, verses 15 to 18, for answers. So if you're there, then we're ready to dig in, buckle up, put your bibs on, whatever, <laughs> to get ready for this. We're in a large section where Paul is using Scripture to define the gospel against the Judaizers' gospel of law. And in our text this morning, he shows the, the foundation of the gospel and, and that, it, that it is the, pro, the promise of God, the foundation of, of the gospel is the promise of God, and it is not the works of the law. Just the, the way in which Paul structures this bit of text, it's, it's evident that he's laying great emphasis on the promise of God. The last passage ended with a reference to the promise in verse 14, and then Paul begins this passage and ends the passage with a word about God's promise to Abraham and to all new covenant believers. So I'm very excited to share with you. Now, I've, I've published the outline in the bulletin for you. The main idea, and I, I could have stated it in a, actually in a number of ways, but just to kind of keep it as simple and as profound as possible, the gospel promise is eternal life that is ours by faith alone. I would say that is the bottom line of Paul's argument in these few verses. So let's begin. The first thing that I'd point out is that God's covenant 
God's covenant with Abraham was a binding promise of eternal life to all those in Christ. And that's in verses 15 to 17. Now, in this particular passage, he, he breaks it up, and, and I love the way he argues here. First of all, he illustrates the truth just to set the stage, to deliver the truth. So he illustrates it first. He says in verse 15, Brothers and sisters, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, I just, as we read this, I think it's, it's, it's evident to us that everyone knows that the stipulations of a will, once ratified, once gone through all the legal procedures with signatures and so on, cannot be ignored or altered in any way by its beneficiaries, right? And that seems to be the common denominator in all last will and testaments, no matter how many different kinds there are. And the same was true, believe it or not, with the wills in the ancient world, with Greek and Roman and Jewish wills. There was a specific process to ratify them. And once ratified, the beneficiaries couldn't ignore what the testator stipulated or changed it to suit their own purposes either. We don't know which kind of will Paul had in mind here, but it really doesn't matter. We only need to know that it was binding. As he makes clear, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. That just didn't happen, and any thinking person in the ancient world would know this, all right? Doesn't happen. Cannot nullify it. You cannot cancel it. Now, once Paul established this in the minds of his Galatian audience, he brings up the Abrahamic covenant in this context of wills. God entered into a relationship with Abraham and promised to him a great inheritance, And the promise was binding. And it makes sense that God would use the conventions uh, that Abraham was familiar with to communicate to him. In this case, it was the convention of a will, which Abraham knew very well. He knew that wills were a normal and necessary part of life. So God made this binding promise to Abraham, and not just with Abraham. Paul says, verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as one would in referring to many, but rather as in referring to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. The Hebrew word for seed can be both plural and singular, just as our English word can be. Um, And that means that the context really needs to determine how it should be used, how it is meant. Paul would use seed in the plural in his uh, letter to the Romans, chapter 4. But here he means it with the singular sense, having one of Abraham's descendants in mind. And it wasn't Isaac, it wasn't Jacob, it wasn't Joseph, but it was Christ himself. All the blessings of this covenant hang on a single descendant of Abraham, namely Jesus. And we know from verse 29, all those who are in Christ are also the beneficiaries of this promise. Now that all seems clear enough. I get it. But God made a covenant with Abraham, not a will. 
So I'm a little bit confused. Yes, well, that's true, but it doesn't. It, it does have characteristics of a will. This covenant with Abraham, for example, God is like a testator. He is outlining his will or his promise with an inheritance. He composed his promise according to his own will. Abraham and his seed are the beneficiaries. Also, God ratified this with Abraham legally. Now, the process in the ancient world, the legal process, was rather graphic and bloody. Certain animals were cut into two parts, and then they were placed on the ground opposite each other, forming a path in the middle. And in situations where two parties have to agree to the stipulations of the covenant, both would walk together, locked in arm, between the animal parts, while they verbally agreed to the terms of the covenant. But God's promise to Abraham, God and Abraham were not agreeing to certain terms. Abraham was just the beneficiary. That's it. He didn't have to meet any kind of conditions. God was the only one who was promising to fulfill his word to Abraham, and he swore by himself that he would do it. In this way, the Abrahamic covenant was what we call unilateral. So God alone passed through the animal parts. Genesis chapter 15, verse 17 says, And it came about when the sun had set, there was, it was very dark, and behold, a smoking oven and a flaming torch appeared, which passed between these pieces. Now, except for the bloody animals and an awesome display of smoke and fire, modern wills are a lot like this. There is a testator, and there are beneficiaries. The testator draws up the will according to his wishes, and once legally ratified, it is set in stone. The beneficiaries are totally passive in it, unless, of course, the testator includes stipulations. God included none in his covenant with Abraham. It was a straightforward promise, telling Abraham what was going to happen to him. The only difference between wills and the Abrahamic covenant, then, is that Yahweh, the testator, does not die. Now, let's not lose the flow. It's very important. Paul first establishes the known fact that wills are binding and cannot be abrogated once they're ratified. Got it. Second, he states that God made something similar with Abraham. So far, so good. Third, and here's the connection he implies, since human wills and testaments that leave inheritances to their beneficiaries cannot be abrogated by their beneficiaries or anything else for that matter, how much more God's will and testament to Abraham? Oh, so much more. Abrahamic covenant is much more binding and unalterable. Why? Because God himself made it. And God swore by himself it would make, and God would make good on his promises, and he has, as we know now, looking back. Furthermore, according to Paul's illustration, if no one can change or cancel a human will once ratified, then no one and nothing could possibly cancel or change God's covenant promise to Abraham and to his posterity. 
God promised an inheritance to the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant, those who would be in Christ, and the promise was ratified and now unalterable. Nothing can cancel it. Nothing can change it. Now, why is this so important for us? Why, why does Paul make this point? Well, because the Judaizers were arguing that the Abrahamic covenant was further modified by the, the law of Moses. It seems a, a common assumption by uh, New Testament commentators that the Judaizers believed the Mosaic covenant to be something like a, a fuller expression of the Abrahamic covenant, that the law was added to it and updated it somehow. In fact, they and many of the Jews of Jesus' time actually understood Abraham himself to have kept the law, even though God hadn't given the law yet. Huh? How is that possible? They explained that Abraham kept the law or the spirit of the law when he was circumcised and set a precedent for a more detailed way of life outlined in the law of Moses. Oh, it's very clever, isn't it? It's very wrong. It's very clever. In this way, they argued, the law supplemented the promise. And we know this to be true from the Galatians. The Judaizers did believe in Jesus, and they did believe in keeping the law. They believed both were necessary if one would receive God's promise of eternal life. They pushed both, not realizing that Jesus fulfilled the law and made the Old Testament obsolete. As a result, and you can see why, they concluded that the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant were primarily Abraham's physical descendants and only secondarily were those affiliated with the Jewish nation by observing the Torah part of the group. Paul brings in his illustration of will and testaments to show that the Abrahamic covenant was only and always God's binding promise to all who were Abraham's descendants by faith. And it couldn't be canceled, and it couldn't be supplemented by anything, even the law of Moses. Now, once he illustrates the truth, he turns his, he turns his attention directly to it, and he explains it in verse 17. Paul, he's, Paul's prepared the Galatians with his illustration. He delivers the punchline in this verse with a clear explanation. What I'm saying is this. He says, what I mean by this illustration, if you haven't put two and two together, is this. Paul says, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So God made a promise to Abraham to bless him and his seed with a great eternal inheritance, one that exceeded even land. And this divine promise can never be changed, can never be supplemented. The law of Moses that came 430 years later cannot cancel God's promise that was Abraham's by faith. And it couldn't supplement it in any way either. God's promise needs no supplementing. Paul's approach to laying down this truth is so simple and, and it's so effective, isn't it? Wills cannot be violated. And if God made one with Abraham and his seed, it certainly cannot be violated. It is unalterable 
and binding. Now with that said, if God's covenant to Abraham was founded on a promise, and it was, it cannot be founded on the law as the Judaizers were teaching. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Well, Paul draws a very simple contrast for the Galatians at this point between the promise and the law with respect to the eternal inheritance that comes with the gospel. And his contrast shows, first of all, that if the inheritance was based on or or came by the law, well, then it could not be based on God's promise at all because God's promise and the law are mutually exclusive. They don't happen at the same time. And in the case of God's promise, the beneficiary receives an inheritance by simply trusting in the word of God alone. But in the case of the law... One would have to obey the law in order to secure for oneself this same inheritance. So inheritance based on God's promise has nothing to do with human participation. An inheritance that is conditioned on works of the law has everything to do with man's work. Paul's contrast also also shows, second of all, that God's promise of eternal life cannot be supplemented by the law either. One is not more successful in trying to, uh, no more successful rather, in trying to supplement God's promise to give an an eternal inheritance with works of the law than he is in mixing oil and vinegar. The two don't mix and neither does promise mix with law. In reality, those who insist on supplementing what only God can do with their own works of the law effectively cancels God's promise for themselves. And you wind up with a false gospel. And that's what was presented to the Galatians, a false gospel. Now, as we have stated several times since we began our study of Galatians, the law is good. Make no mistake, the law is good. And Paul would have told you that. It came from God. It reflects his character. But he gave it to believing Israel as a means of their sanctification. It described how God's genuine believers needed to conduct themselves if God would dwell in their midst. But as it would happen, only a small remnant of true believers in the nation benefited from the law, really, all throughout Israel's history. Just a small remnant. Men like Moses, Aaron, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, the major prophets, the minor prophets, these are the people that benefited from the law. It was their means of maintaining their spiritual lives. The psalmist actually would repeat over and over again in the Psalter, How I love your law, O God. And as good and as beneficial as the law was to Old Testament covenant believers, it was never meant to save anyone. In fact, the secondary purpose of the law was brought into sharp focus in the lives of unrighteous Israel. It was to condemn 
It condemned their disobedience, accused them of breaking the law, of violating 70 years of Sabbaths, of intermarrying with pagan neighbors, worshiping their gods. The law had its, this double-edged effect, you see. It was a means of sanctification for believing Jews and a means of condemnation for unbelieving Jews. And Paul will talk further on a few verses from here in this letter of that secondary purpose of the law and how it actually exposes the sin of unbelievers and condemns them, leaving them no choice, no alternative, but to look to the Messiah. And he'll talk about that, more on that much later. But let's understand here, one cannot inherit eternal life through the law. It's impossible. The unbeliever cannot trust for his salvation the very thing that condemns him, right? It's impossible. Rather, those who would enjoy this eternal inheritance, who would enjoy eternal life with, with God both now and in heaven someday, simply must have faith in the gospel promise of God. It's God's promise of the gospel that both saves you and, as I hope to show you in just a few moments, sanctifies you as well. Now, we've also had opportunities since our time in Galatians to understand that the church faces similar problems today. While it might not be looking strictly into the Mosaic law as a supplement to the gospel, there are other things that it has looked to, right? Editing the message, making it more palatable for the unbelieving audience, or adding to it in a legalistic way or perhaps taking away from it boasting of grace and, and how grace is sufficient. Paul, of course, answers that question, shall we sin that grace may abound? That's the kind of, that's the kind of ends that this thinking brings us to. Now we, we've run the gamut, I think, but I'm, I'm not interested in repeating that here. What I want us to think about as we move toward an application of Paul's words in this brief passage, is, is that the, the benefit that comes from trusting in God's gospel by faith alone. That's what I want to talk about. Let me at this time make an important observation with you. This is very important. In verse 16, Paul says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Do you see that? Now you're probably focused on the seed. Paul did and we did just a little while ago. But I, I don't want to miss a very important difference with the word promises. Notice it's plural, right? You notice that Paul speaks of promises, plural, but then switches in verses 17 and 18 to promise singular. So what's the significance of the change? And is Paul speaking of two different things? Well, let me answer that in the reverse order. Paul is speaking of the same thing. He's speaking of the gospel promise of eternal life with both the plural and the singular, the same thing. But I believe he uses the singular in verses 17 and 18 to speak of the gospel in its totality. That is, everything that comes in the inheritance with the gospel promise. While in verse 16, he alludes to the many aspects within that totality. So we can speak of the promise that is the new covenant, singular, and we can speak of the promises that are ours 
in the new covenant, plural, same thing. And, there, and the promises are many. Many promises that are founded in the gospel, in our promise of salvation and of eternal life. And we would do well, beloved, to emphasize them. After all, Paul refers to them in verse 16, and, and, and they can greatly impact our Christian lives. So far from supplementing the gospel promises, which don't need supplementing, we need to orient our lives to the promises of God that he made once to Abraham, but to his seed and to those in Christ, you and to me. So what do I mean? Well, let me give you at least four ways that we are to orient ourselves to the gospel promises. That is how we live with respect to the promises that are ours as new covenant believers. They're very simple, but again, very profound. Everything is that way in the Bible. First of all, we need to rest in them. We need to rest in the promises of God, or as some have said and sung, stand in the promises of God. Same thing. What are you resting in today at this point in time in history in America? What are you standing in? Psalm 1 verse 1 warns us not to stand in the way of the sinner. We need to stand in God's way, which is so very different, as God has said, from man's way. We, we need to stand in God's way, and God's way really is code for his word, which is, 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 is filled uh, which fills, rather, uh, or is filled, rather, with, our co- with covenant promises, plural. And in those times in our Christian lives that are very dark, very ominous, even the unbeatable odd type, where we are tempted to waver and maybe doubt either our faith or God's will for our lives in, in that particular situation, It's a terrible place to be. Many of God's saints have been there. And God saw fit to record their experiences and how they confronted them boldly and proactively. I want to give you a few examples. The meeting that Jonathan had with David when David was running from Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 23, it's a great example. David despairs of life when he learns that Saul, who was hunting him down to kill him, was nearly upon him, despaired of life. Now, this was God's anointed. You may remember that God promised David that he would be king, right? Promised him. And yet here we find David despairing of life in one of the darkest moments to date in his life. How is that? How does that happen? Why would David despair? Well, he does. David despairs of life when he learns that Saul was nearly upon him. There's no question that he and his men are afraid. Just as David sinks into the slough of despond, Jonathan visits. And he says in verse 16, 1 Samuel 23, that Jonathan strengthens David in God. 
The phrase in God in verse 16 qualifies Jonathan's strengthening ministry here. He discerns that doubt is at the root of David's fear and that David was starting to live more by sight than by faith in the promises that God made to him, especially the one that said he would be king. And that's what happens when we live by faith. We start to doubt and and deny the promises of God. We don't see how they could possibly materialize in our lives with all of this stuff going on. This is where David was. Jonathan speaks directly to those doubts. He says, David, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. He then firmly reiterates God's will for David, which Samuel had already declared. You will be king over Israel. God said it. David knew it. Jonathan had to remind him of it. But the way things were going in his life, this didn't look like it was going to happen. So David doubts. Jonathan was right to rein David in to the covenant promise of God. And beloved, the very gospel that Jesus offers to us comes with rest. You know that, right? Salvation, rest. Take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest. We can rest confidently in the promises of salvation because Jesus paid it all. And as a result, Jesus told his disconsolate disciples in John 14, you remember first three verses, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you also will be. It's a great promise. It's a gospel promise. And it is in the midst of the darkest cloud of despair that brings pain and loneliness, the likes of which Joseph, David, Jeremiah, and Paul knew and which Jesus felt the most. And that is characteristic of the true worshiper of God. There is nothing that can stay our course than the comfort and the hope that only God's promises bring. Oh, beloved, we we need to rest in them and not in anything that this world has to offer. Are you resting in the promises of the new covenant? Do you know them well? Are you standing in them? And not just standing. Number two, we need to act on them. We need to act. You know, Adam did not act on the covenant promise that God made to him in the garden, which theologians call the covenant of works. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it you will die. And Adam instead believed in a false promise made to him by the serpent, right? Eat, and you shall be like God. Hmm. The results were disastrous. Let's not override the promises of God that are ours in Christ for these cheap substitutes, which can kill. Paul provides us with a great example, I think, of what he means to act on the promises of God in Colossians chapter 3. 
Hear the promises in verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Isn't that a great promise? And because through his, this gospel promise that we have and that we've been saved by and our lives are hidden with Christ in God, Paul says that we can then go on to live a certain way in light of this promise. Keep seeking the things that are above, he says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, verse Two, set your minds on things that are above and not on things of this earth. Treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, devote yourself to prayer. Keep alert in it and in an attitude of thanksgiving. Verses 5 and 6, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of that opportunity. Verse 6, your speech must always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You get the idea? Acting on the promises, the gospel promises, let them be the basis of your life. Paul reminds us of what is true of us in Christ. In our conversion, because we died with Christ, because we were buried with him, because we rose with him to newness of life, Paul then goes on to say and. In Romans 6, verse 11, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to Christ, or alive to God in Christ. That's the promise. Sin no longer has mastery over you. You're dead to that relationship, and it is on that promise that he then urges in verse 12, so then don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Can you see how the how the truth of your conversion equips you to, to do battle. We find another such foundational truth in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am confident that he is able to protect what I have entrusted to him until that day. Is that your claim let the promises of God be the basis of your life and also let them motivate you to live godly. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 5, Paul takes to task the ungodly and sinful practice among believers in Corinth of suing each other. Do you remember that? His series of rhetorical questions not only rebukes them for it, but proves to them that they are, that, that they, that they, that they should not consult the world to, to settle disputes in the church because they have the ability in Christ to do a far better job. Why? Because of the promise that they will someday rule with Christ and judge even angels. Do you not know, he says, that you will be judging angels? Well, if this is true, and it is, then surely they are competent to judge conflicts in the church. The writer to the Hebrews calls us to anticipate our inheritance. And so run well the race of faith. We are to follow the lead of the great cloud of witnesses whom the writer says all died in faith without receiving the promises but 
have seen and welcomed them from a distance, and they confess that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. They didn't indulge in the momentary pleasures of this world. There is a sense, beloved, in which the New Covenant believers anticipate the fulfillment of eschatological promises and therefore should live in light of them. Not too long ago, we finished a series in our Wednesday evening Bible study that we called Eschatological Practicality, if you remember that, by which we, we argued that we should live in light of eschatological promises. And, and how do we do that? Well, one such gospel promise is 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when, we, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. This is a gospel promise. If you are saved by the blood of Christ, by faith alone, then you will see Christ face to face one day and be like him. That's a promise. Binding. Unalterable. Absolute. John then show, shows us in verse 3 how this new covenant promise should motivate us. And everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself just as Christ is pure. Letting the eschatological promises motivate us. Beloved, are you acting on the gospel promises of God, resting in them, acting on them, and now I say pleading them, pleading them, plead the promises to God. Now, this might sound a bit strange to you coming from this pulpit because to some of you it smacks of the, well, the name-it-and-claim-it practice touted by the, uh, the Word and Faith Movement or the Prosperity Gospel. But I assure you that we are not teaching that God wants his children healthy, wealthy, and prosperous and that they can be guaranteed of getting what they want simply by asking in Jesus' name. What I do mean and what the Bible does teach, and what you shouldn't be surprised to hear from this pulpit, is that there are moments when we should plead God's promises in our prayers to him. And that could be in a number of different ways. Give him reasons why he should answer your prayer when you petition him for help, as Moses did in Exodus 33, when he interceded for idolatrous Israel. Is also reminding ourselves, I think, that God has and will continue to keep his promises to us. That's all throughout the Psalter. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 105, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Promise. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Psalm is praying this to God as a way of reminding himself of how he should behave and why. Do you pray that way? David said in 2 Samuel 7, verse 25, Now then, Lord God, the word that you have spoken about your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do just as you have spoken so that your name may be great forever. Plead the promises. 
Is this not what it means to pray the will of God? The Puritans called it pleading God's promises to him. That's where I got it. And they saw it as our responsibility. English Puritan Samuel Clark believed that Christians need, needed to have a fixed, had to fix their attention constantly on God's promises if they would prevent themselves from fear and anxiety about the concerns of this life. He says, quote, Christians deprive themselves of their, of their most solid comforts by their unbelief and forgetfulness of God's promises, for there is no extremity so great, but there are promises suitable to it and abundantly sufficient for our relief in it. Clark believed also that a great time, that a great time to plead these promises is in, the, is in prayer to God. Quote, a thorough acquaintance with the promises would be of the greatest advantage in prayer. With what comfort may the Christian address himself to God in Christ when he considers the repeated assurances that his prayers shall be heard? With how much satisfaction may he offer up the several desires of his heart when he reflects upon the text wherein those very mercies are promised? And with what fervor of spirit and strength of faith may he enforce his prayers by pleading the several gracious promises which are expressly to his case. End quote. With regard to the absolute promises of the new covenant, William Gouge, another English Puritan, in his comments on Hebrews 8, 10 to 12, says this, Quote, we ought to believe that they shall be the that they shall be accomplished, so it shall assuredly be according to our faith. End quote. In other words, we should plead them before the throne of grace. Pray believing, James says. Spurgeon preached on this same practice with equal fervor in his day. Sadly, it has fallen on hard times in the modern era in Christianity in America. You don't hear this stuff. Praying is so selfish, so self-centered. According to J.I. Packer, long ago when he wrote Knowing God, he said this, quote, In the days when the Bible was universally acknowledged in the churches as God's word written, it was clearly understood that the promises of God recorded in Scripture were the proper God-given basis for all our, our life and of faith, and that and that the way to strengthen one's faith was to focus it upon particular promises that spoke to one's condition, end quote. He goes on to say that liberal theology, quote, has largely robbed us of the habit of mediating, I'm sorry, meditating on the promises and basing our promises, our, our prayers on the promise and venturing in faith in our ordinary daily life just as far as the promises will take us, end quote. And finally, we find a, a form of pleading God's promises in the biblical practice of petitioning God, as I mentioned already, as the saints of old would by giving reasons why God should answer their prayer. Many times, they give the reason that God is their covenant God, that he keeps the promises that he makes, that he pours out his loyal love on them. 
Are you in the habit of giving God sound biblical reasons why he should answer your prayers? Of pleading God's promises made to you? That he will do what he says? That he will do what he says he will do in your life? That you may stay the course? I heard Joel Beakey say this past weekend at a conference that we ought to let our kids know when God has kept his promise to us. He's right. Is this not what we should what we should do and what should comprise our prayers to God in the assembly even? This is why we give we give time to praise in the assembly. Boasting of what he has done in our lives, that's praise that we might spread his reputation, make it weighty in the eyes of those who hear, that he is keeping his word to us to mature us and ready us for heaven. In conclusion, I want to say that we should also rejoice in these promises. Stand or rest in them. Act on them. Um, Act on them and uh, plead them ardently in your prayer life, in your prayer closet, the very promises of God, and rejoice in them. You know, people who don't keep their promises, right? You've been on the receiving end of that. God always keeps his promises. That's a joyful thing. It's worth rejoicing over. We have a word from God, an absolute sufficient word that cannot be broken, And as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, the sacred writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. They are sufficient for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. The gospel promise of God, Christ, the promised Messiah who brings with him a great inheritance and all the promises founded on this truth that are ours in the new covenant are absolute. They stand alone. They're standalone promises made by God himself. And he always keeps his promises. Oh, let's let the words of Paul today confirm not only their validity but their necessity in your life as you mature in your faith. And let's be careful, beloved, not to ignore or even dare supplement these perfect and absolute promises, but to rest in them and act on them and plead them before the throne of grace and rejoice in them.